everybody, and welcome to episode 295 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Brian Hogan. Hi, everybody. We also have Jason Sweat. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a quick shout out about a couple of conferences coming up. We have uh, JS Remote Conf coming up in um, in March and Freelance Remote Conf coming up in April. So if you're interested in either of those topics, then go check them out. We also have a special guest this this week, and that's Devin Estes. Did I say that right? Howdy. Yeah, you got it. You want to give us a brief introduction, who you are, what you do, who you work for, that kind of thing? Sure thing. Uh, so, like I said, my name's Devin. I am currently living in Berlin, Germany, and I am mostly a Ruby and Rails developer for a nonprofit in San Francisco, actually called Education Superhighway. Uh, we're trying to bring sufficient school broadband to all the schools in the U.S., which we're making good progress on. But when, when I started, I didn't even know how big a problem it was. It, it was a significant problem. But uh, I work there mostly on internal tools to sort of help support the rest of the company and what they're doing. And uh, I also do a lot of uh, Elixir open source stuff. That's sort of my other part of my programming life. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's me. Awesome. Well, we brought you on this week to talk about some of the things that are happening in the Ruby world in Europe. And it's kind of interesting because I think we tend to think about the things that are happening around happening around us in the U.S. And there's always different movement. I know the Japan Ruby community is pretty different and interesting, too. And so I thought this would be an interesting way to kind of dive in and see, OK, um, for for those not in the U.S., you know, what's it like? What What's different? And since you've done both, I'm assuming since you work for a San Francisco company. Yeah. What, what is it that we don't think about here in the U S that's different in the Ruby community out there? Yep. Yeah. So that was actually one of the things I was really surprised about when we moved here, we, we moved to Germany like a year and a half ago. Um, and I had been, I grew up outside New York and I've been living in San Francisco and, um, uh, it was really interesting to see both the things that are different, I think in a really good way. And also the things where the American community is, is shining as well. Um, so the, the biggest difference that I noticed like on first, first meetup, the first time I went to the local Ruby users group here is that um, there's still some ways to go in terms of gender diversity in a big way here. Um, like we have a really great rails girls, Berlin chapter here and, and people are trying to do that work, but it's still, you know, it feels like where the U S Ruby community was 10 years ago here, you know, they're still a little bit behind in that aspect. Um, but on the flip side, there are so many people from so many different parts of the world here in a way that I, I didn't see as much of in San Francisco. Like I've met so many great engineers from Africa and like I had met, African-Americans, but I don't think I'd ever met an engineer that was like from Nigeria before uh, to the point where I didn't even know they spoke English in Nigeria. <laughs> um, but I've met so many people here writing Ruby that have come from all over the world, from Singapore, from um, uh, Vietnam, from Nigeria, South Africa. Just it's it's really surprising to me to see that sort of geographic diversity in a big way here. Um, and I think that's a big part of where some of the different uh, that diversity is leading to a really cool development of some of the technical things in, in Ruby as well here. Okay. 
I just have to ask you, Devin, because you mentioned Nigeria like twice. Um, I happen to know a guy from Nigeria who lives in Berlin. Have you met a guy named Abin Bola by chance? No, this guy's name is Charles. Gotcha. I just had to ask because that would be a pretty interesting <laughs> No, um, there are a significant number of Nigerians here. Like, uh-huh. there's a significant community. Like, I think there's at least two or three of them that I've met at the local Ruby users group. Okay. Yeah, I happened to go over there to Nigeria a couple of years ago. And so I, I know a handful of people from Nigeria. Um, so when you go to like, uh, well, how do you meet people? Do you go to like a, a local uh, Ruby meetup or something like that? And there's like a couple dozen people there because that's what I'm used to here. Is it similar in that way over there? Yeah, it's similar. We have a really strong uh, Ruby users group here. Um, took me a little while to find it because they're not on meetup.com, but luckily someone that I knew from the Ruby users group in San Francisco used to live in Berlin and they told me about it. But uh, uh, yeah, I go to the meetups when I can. Uh, we have a kind of crazy schedule. My, my wife's an opera singer, which is why we moved here. And so uh, she works nights sometimes. So it's a little tricky for me to get to all the meetups, but I do go to the meetups and um, I recently spoke at um, Ruby day in Italy, which is sort of like Ruby conf, Italy version um, okay. and met a lot of great Milan, people right? there. Uh, it moves around every okay. year. So this year it was in Florence. Oh, I lived in Italy for two years. So you talk about Italy and I'll get nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> it was my first, my first time in Florence and it was incredible. Even though the last day that I had pegged for like my tourism, go see all the stuff day was the day of the Florence marathon. So like everything was closed, which was a little bit of a bummer, oh, wow. but, uh, but yeah, it was a, wildly beautiful city. I usually don't like living in cities. I'm more of a country suburban guy, but there's something about Italian cities that I don't mind as much. It was a really lovely place. Yep. I'll also uh, just say that when I was, so I lived in Italy like 15 years ago and um, I was a missionary. I was a Mormon missionary. So we were walking up and down the street and knocking on doors and talking to people. And there were a lot of Africans in, in Italy then and so it's it's not surprising at all to me to hear that, you know, uh, at least a part of the community in Europe is made up of Africans and Eastern Europeans and, and other folks who have come into uh, those countries from other places. Yeah, I mean, I maybe it was just my my like American centrism of thinking of America as this great melting pot, not really thinking of Europe in the same way, but that really surprised me to see such geographic diversity here. Um, even more so than I've seen in, in the States, like by, by far, uh, it, it, it was something I wasn't expecting. Um, but it's really, really interesting to see. And they all have such different perspectives on, uh, programming. A lot of them, uh, a surprising amount have, uh, have some form of like computer science training, from the countries that they grew up in. Like, it seems like there are, you know, I never thought that there would be a significant computer science or like technical um, educational infrastructure in parts of Africa. But I guess like Nigeria is really well developed in that. They, they have a lot of people that are really good at computers there. Uh, and I've heard the same thing about Kenya as well. Like there are great parts of Kenya where, uh, where there are a lot of good engineers and, and the Congo is even starting to be uh, a place where people are, are starting startups. Like that place was pretty, pretty war torn just 20 years ago. And now they're 
sort of one of the tech centers of, of Central Africa. So it's really cool to see that and to meet those people that have had those experiences. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you bring that up too. I actually did a presentation and talked to a group of um, developers in a boot camp in South Africa. And that boot camp, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I'll, I think it was something together. Anyway, um, but yeah, uh, they actually went out of their way to um, bring in um, lower income people from basically the bush and teach them how to program and give them that quality of life because now they had a skill that they could go out and do and, and make a, a, a decent living at instead of, you know, whatever they did out in the village that they came from. And, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. It's, it's just interesting because, yeah, then they move up. And a lot of times Europe for, um, for Africa is easier to get to than the United States or Canada. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's much, much easier. Uh, it's, it's almost entirely like it, it, again, didn't, didn't strike me as much, but you see fewer people from South America and way more people from Africa and Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And, you know, they're just geographically closer, you know, <laughs> yep. it's not, yep. not so hard to make that trip. So one thing I wonder about out there, you know, cause we, we talk about sort of the, um, the ethnic diversity. I, I don't know if that's the right term, but you know, people from different countries and different backgrounds um, being in the community uh, besides that, I'm, I'm curious, are there other differences within the Ruby community? For example, um, do they tend to focus on different aspects of Ruby or do they, do they look at code differently or do they, is, is that mostly the same and it's really just a matter of, Hey, we're out here and we're participating with. So the biggest difference I've seen in that world is around rails. Uh, like that aspect here is around rails. So in the U S a lot of people just instantly associate Ruby with rails. And if you're working in Ruby, you're probably writing rails apps. Um, and that's still mostly the case here, but less so. Uh, Rails has has less of a a vice-like grip on the Ruby market. And there are a lot more people here, from what I've seen, um, exploring alternative frameworks or using just different things, using Rails in different ways. Um, There are a couple alternative frameworks by Europeans that I've seen getting pretty significant interest and even some, some good usage. Um, one that is most on my mind these days is Hanami, which used to be called Lotus, um, by Luca Guidi. He had to change it cause of some trademark stuff, but, um, it's sort of like rails, but different, you know, it's just different enough. And there are a lot of very different, um, ways in which Ruby is used. Um, in Hanami, uh, you know, they add, uh, view models, uh, you know, it's not just the straight MVC. There are significantly more parts to the cake. You know, the cake is cut up in, in different layers, which I think is really interesting. And I, I personally really like, I think it's a good addition to the framework world. Um, what is this framework called? Uh, I heard you say the name, but I'm curious, like how to spell it to look at Hanami. It's a Japanese word, H-A-N-A-M-I. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. <clears throat> yeah, it's really cool. And uh, they're they're working on 1.0 and um, they just, uh, Luca works for Simple DNS and they just released their API version two, which is a pretty major Hanami application that's now out in production under pretty heavy load. So um, 
it's uh, I think it's a really interesting evolution of the Ruby web framework. Um, it is different in a lot of ways and similar in a lot of ways, but I think it addresses some of the pain points that I personally have had working on larger Rails applications. Um, and it's, uh, it most interestingly to me uses, uh, a different ORM. It uses ROM, uh, Ruby object mapper, which was by, or it's just by, uh, Piotr Solnica and a bunch of other, other folks, but Piotr is another European, you know, he lives in, in, uh, Poland and, um, ROM is a really different ORM versus uh, what you have coming from Active Record. So there's a, a lot of immutability in a lot of Pyotr stuff. Um, you know, a lot of the libraries that he writes are really functional inspired in a lot of ways and I think is really interesting. And I think it's a, a interesting way for the language to um, develop as we get into the future. So that's sort of the... That was the gist of the talk that I gave at Ruby Day, which is uh, thinking about the future of Ruby and the ways in which Ruby is going to have to adapt to basically parallelism to the new multi-core reality. Is you know Ruby was written in '93, and then it had a lot of time to come up in the 10 years before we sort of hit the clock speed barrier and we started going to multi-core in 2004. And um, Right now, we still don't have a great way of handling that. And we've been okay for a bit. But I think if Ruby is going to continue well into the future for like another 25 years, we're going to need to think about Ruby differently than we think about it now. Um, and that means changing some paradigms and changing what we consider to be... Um, best practices and what we consider to be idiomatic Ruby. And um, in the States, it seems like whenever someone says idiomatic Ruby or best practices, it's the Rails way because Rails is so opinionated and because DHH is so good at marketing and he's created such an incredible brand for Rails and for that style of writing Ruby, um, there is pushback when you try and change that in the States, I think, because that brand is so strong there and it's not as strong here. It's still big, but I think here, because Rails isn't the big, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the room, people are more free to sort of explore and play and think about um, really radically different ways of doing stuff with Ruby. I'm really curious to know, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing or just a different thing or what? I think it's a great thing that anytime you have more diversity within a community, you're going to see more competition and, you know, good ideas will, will bubble up and get used and, and people will liberally take those good ideas. Um, you know, funny enough, I asked Luca at Ruby day, like if, if DHH came to you and said, you know, we want to do a, a Hanami rails merger, like they did with Merv, like we want to take all the good things that we think from you uh, that you came up with and put them into rails. Would you do it? And, and, uh, Luca said, no, I, I really want Hanami to be its own thing to be able to develop in its own way and to keep the diversity in the community so that there are other ways of writing Ruby web apps. You know, it, he really thinks that that's important and I do too. Um, when you have just one way of doing it, then you're potentially stuck in the past. 
and having that competition helps to develop the future. And, and I think we are going to need, maybe not now, or maybe not even five years from now, but eventually we're going to need new ways of writing Ruby. And I, I would hate to see Ruby become less popular or less used because what it's done really well so far is create a great community. And that's the really, really hard part. I think creating a community is way harder than creating technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of every programming language is Turing complete. Everything can theoretically do everything else, but having the community around it that Ruby has is I think one of the real, um, the real aces up the sleeve of Ruby. That's, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's trump card is the community and the frameworks and the, the gems and the libraries and all of the work that's been done to make it a really great ecosystem and a great community. And I think Ruby, that community should continue into the future. It would be such a shame for that community to be fractured into all of these different other languages that people are using now because they either need better concurrency support or they need something faster um, because, you know, they have complicated applications and their users expect things to be instant because we've always expected that it's always been the case. Yeah. So this is, this is just fascinating to me just listening to this because, uh, those are a lot of the feelings that I've been having recently about the Ruby ecosystem thing. Everybody sort of abandoned everything and just sort of jumped aboard rails. And I like rails. I've I've been successful with it. It's been fun to build certain applications for people, but yeah, I've been finding myself moving to different things. You know, I spent a lot of, a lot of time recently with Elixir to solve some problems because I couldn't do what I wanted to with rails and I didn't feel like other things are out there. So it's just really refreshing to know that there's, uh, there's other people thinking about this in, in other communities. And I think uh, it makes me wonder, you know, what are things that we can do to sort of bridge the gap between the community we have here in the United States and, uh, you know, the community uh, over in Europe and the community in, in Japan. We, it seems that we have these good communities, but I, I sometimes wonder if we're not talking uh, or talking past each other. And I always wonder what we can do about that. Yeah, that's a tricky Question. I think the the hardest thing that I've seen is just getting people together, getting them talking in a room uh, or getting them to share those ideas in a an open way. You know, for for all that Rails has done for the community, you know, it's, it's such an integral part of the community of one, one thing that it hasn't always been great at, or that some people in their core team haven't always been great at are kindly listening to others, um, and sharing and, uh, and occasionally after fits and, and, and starts changes will happen. Like I remember, I think I remember DHH saying like there will never be an API mode in rails and, and now there is. And, and I think, um, having the conversation is the important thing because if we're feeling pain in doing something and we express that to Mats and to the rails core team and to everyone else that's writing Ruby libraries, they will address it. Um, it's just a matter of making that note. Um, I, you know, the, one of the other talks at RubyConf this year was Matt's keynote in which he was talking about the potential for a type system in Ruby because he had heard a lot of users wanted some sort of type system. Um, 
And I think if we make the pain that we're feeling today known more, um, if there are more ways to get in front of the decision makers and just sort of um, make our voices heard and and if we feel comfortable doing that and if there are spaces where people can go and not necessarily complain but just say hey this is great but this is a problem that I'm having and that I've heard other people have and it's something that it would be great if it could be addressed uh, in the future and if people can be talking about that and thinking about solutions like I'm really happy that Koichi is working on guilds and that proposal to have a proper like native um, good multi-threading story like a concurrence concurrency story in Ruby that's going to be great but I I'm not sure that that's the end-all be-all um, you know I don't know how many people uh, Koichi spoke to before he came up with that like I don't know how many users have been influencing the, the direction of that development and if that's necessarily the best way to go so I think um, you know, one of the things that I push for a lot and one of the reasons I like working on internal tools <laughs> at work is because I have like nine users and I can talk to all of them and I know what they need and I know what pain they're feeling and I know how I can address that pain. And if there are more or better ways in which we can all um, speak and uh, make our voices heard to sort of say what we like, what we don't like, you know, it'd be great if we could have this like global retrospective board, you know, where everyone can put up their likes and their wishes. Um, <laughs> um, but it's, it's hard, you know, it, it's hard to first create those spaces where people feel comfortable sharing like that. And then also to absorb all of that for the maintainers. Um, I, I would imagine that someone that has the free time could maybe like build a thing to aggregate all of this information. Um, but it, it's, it's tricky. There's definitely a missing piece there and I don't really know what it is. Um, I mean, clearly there's the big, the big hindrance of language, um, which is something that as someone who doesn't speak very good German, <laughs> I have felt, uh, intimately for the last 18 months, but, um, that, that can be solved. Um, you know, there are people in the middle who can translate uh, that know multiple languages, but it does make it a little trickier because not everyone speaks English. And um, that's sort of the language of, of programming for a good chunk of the community, but you're missing a lot of the people that don't speak English. You're missing a lot of those voices and their input. Um, or I, I would say also for Ruby core Japanese, because uh, that's, you know, most of the Ruby core team speaks Japanese. Um, but it, language is tricky. Um, I recall hearing uh, Aaron Patterson talk in a, a podcast and him saying that he learned Japanese so that he could be more involved on Ruby development, which I think is partly incredible and partly crazy um, that you should have to learn another like spoken human language to be part of a programming language community. Um, well, that's it, it, it's interesting that it's crazy that you have to do that, but that's what we, that's what we're expecting as English speakers. We're expecting everyone else in the world to do that for yeah. our communities, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's an expectation that I think is, is dangerous because you're, you're cutting off a big part of your users and you're not able to get info or input from those users if you expect them to speak English. And then, 
you know, as you start getting into harder and harder things where communication and, and mastery of the spoken language is so important, then you lose a good chunk of those users and you lose that input and maybe really good, um, uh, really good ideas. Um, it, it's, it's something that in my open source work, I've, I've tried to push. Like when I, uh, I remember a while back, I gave a talk at newbie, newbie remote conf about getting started in open source. And one of the things that whenever I talk to people about getting started in open source, especially if I know they speak multiple languages, I say, please go and translate documentation. There's no reason that everything needs to be documented just in English. You know, documentation should be in as many languages as it can be. Um, because there are a lot of people that just don't speak English and certainly not well enough to read technical documentation. Uh, and you'll be able to um, include a significant a significant additional population by having documentation in multiple languages. And yes, it's, it's difficult, but I think it's important. Um, and, you know, it would be great if there was a way to, you know, have some sort of like auto translate in GitHub in the way they do on like Google, like that would be really helpful. I think that would be a great, great feature for them to add, uh, even just for issues, you know, just so that people could write issues in their native language and say, to the Rails core team, like, hey, I, I love Rails, but this is a real common problem that I have, and I'm wondering if you guys are thinking about it, just to bring the idea up, you know? I think that's really interesting, too, because, uh, again, you know, when I lived in Italy, um, you know, it for me, you know, you know, to drive from one city to another is like, um, you know, driving from Salt Lake to Provo in Utah, right? Um, but from there, you know, going from say Florence to Switzerland or Austria or France is like going from one state to another here in the U S and they speak a completely different language. And if you're going to get really into it, um, each area within each country also has its own dialect. And so, um, you know, some of the older people don't really speak, at least I found didn't really always speak Italian. They spoke the dialect much better. And so, you know, it's, it, it is a barrier and sometimes we don't understand um, just how that is. The other thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, within a geographic area that's roughly the size of the continental U.S., you probably have a couple dozen languages if you go to Europe. Oh, uh, even in communities not like that, uh, when we were in, when I was stationed overseas, dude, all right, there was like 40, 50 different dialects. It was a nightmare. It was like insane. So I definitely understand the whole making sure that there are multiple uh, forms of documentation written up in languages. So in multiple languages, like it's just, that's one of the most, the largest things that when I talk to other like people that are new in code from other countries are like, that's the hardest part of getting into the community is trying to find that their their native tongues uh, format and learning how to code or learn how to program. I was just going to say, I mean, I know people who have learned English so that they could learn programming, but think of all of the people we're missing out on because they don't have the capacity or the time or the money to learn English. Yeah. And for me, I drastically underestimated the difficulty and the anxiety of me being forced to speak German, like my German is, is passable in some situations, but 
to even just go and like make an appointment to take my dog to the vet, I have to like work up so much courage just to go and do that. And I will go and do it because I won't call on the phone because it's harder to hear people on the phone. And like, it's, I've, I've gained so much more empathy for both the immigrant experience, but especially moving somewhere where you don't speak the language. It's, it's really emotionally quite difficult to do that. And, um, it, it, even with Google translate and all of that, it still makes me much less likely to engage in a community. If German is going to be like the only language that's spoken. Um, it's, it's, much, much harder, I think, than many people would, would guess. Um, and, and I have more so, um, sort of doubled down on my conviction that, that translating documentation and guides into as many languages as possible is a really important thing because I, I think that the language barrier in spoken language is, is maybe one of the larger outstanding issues in the Ruby community. Um, I know there's, there's work, there's work towards it. And then there's also Google translate, but, um, it's not perfect. And I think it would make for such a more welcoming community. If we had more, more things translated into more languages. Um, but that being said, you know, most of the developers, at least here in Berlin and then the people I've met in Italy and, um, other friends of mine that live in other countries, friends in, in Denmark and, uh, Sweden, you know, they work in English because that's sort of the common language amongst the European union. You know, uh, like I said, a lot of the offices or the companies here in Berlin, they'll have people from Germany and France and Morocco and Turkey and, and Israel and everyone speaks English, you know? So it's, uh, <laughs> It's it's funny because that has sort of become the de facto and sort of in the same way that uh, that some of the sort of performance concurrency things are like something we know we should do better, but we're not really feeling the pain now. I think that that's another area where we could do a lot better, but we're not feeling the pain as much as other things. So it's not being addressed, but I think we're we're not feeling the pain because the people feeling that pain can't express it. Um, so that's something that, uh, I've seen a lot of places here in Europe, uh, they will try and have as many languages as possible, like support for many, many different languages, um, simply because it's, it's, it's almost necessary here because there are, there is such integration and so much diversity within a city. You know, I can go to a movie theater that just shows stuff in their original languages because there's demand for that. You know, there are a lot of people that want to watch French movies in French and American movies in English and, and, uh, um, you know, uh, Italian movies in Italian. Because there are a lot of those people that speak those languages. So there's a lot of support here for native languages. Um, because it's, you know, almost because there's more of a market for it here. There are more of those people that speak those languages here, I think. So what's your favorite thing about being in a Ruby community outside the U S Oh boy, my favorite thing. Well, I, I definitely really enjoy the ability to see how other people are solving, um, solving kind of the same problems and see those different takes. 
Um, that's especially one of my favorite things about exorcism as well. Like I'm one of the track maintainers for the electric track on exorcism. And I, I try and do a lot of that. And I see, um, it's in, really interesting to see a lot of people solving the same problem and solving it in different ways. And here you can see that as well. Um, I think because of that diversity of background and because of, um, people feeling a little more free to break away from the rails way and that sort of style of, of writing Ruby, uh, you see stuff like, uh, ROM and you see another sort of collection of libraries from Piotr Solnica, uh, called dry RB, where each one is a sort of small library that solves a sort of, um, small self-contained problem, but the way in which those problems are solved are, it was like nothing I had ever seen in Ruby. It's very, very functional inspired, sort of like ROM is like, everything is immutable. Um, um, you know, Piotr's loves functional programming. I think he and I are kind of in a similar boat where we love functional programming, but we're not ready to leave Ruby yet. Like we'd rather just try and make Ruby, uh, take some of those things that we think makes functional programming really good and try and bring them into Ruby rather than just leaving Ruby. Um, because as much as I've tried and thought about it, I just kind of can't bring myself to it for some reason to, to actually not be as involved in the Ruby community and to not write Ruby on a daily basis or a somewhat daily basis. Um, and I don't know, it, it was the first language that, hit me with that sort of sense of joy and happiness. And I'd like to see it continue to be a joyful and, and happy language. Um, there, yeah, there's something you mentioned a couple of times that I'd like to go into a little more detail if, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, you mentioned ROM and I've looked into ROM in the past and I thought it was super interesting, but for whatever reason, it, it didn't make sense for me to use it for any particular project at that time. Um, but I thought it made a lot of sense. Um, and would you consider ROM to be like almost apples to apples to like rails active record? Like either you could use something like active record or you could use something like ROM. Cause my understanding is there's two, uh, 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 design patterns, right? Active yeah, record is not, not only, not only does rails have something called active record, like independently of anything to do with rails, there's a design pattern called active record. And then there's a different design pattern called data mapper and my understanding is that rails active record is an implementation of the active record design pattern and then rom is an implementation of the data mapper design pattern but i'm not 100 percent sure that i'm right about that because i've never used it i'd be curious to hear your take so you're pretty much right in saying that active record the rails component the that library is an implementation of the active record pattern it's it's that and then some it's it's uh, a bunch of other things as well like there's there's parts of the repository and the data mapper uh patterns sort of tossed in there as well and rom is is smaller in a sense it doesn't have as much as active record but for general like data mapping and persistence um they both solve that problem rom doesn't solve Right now, every thing, every problem that Active Record can solve, but there are a lot of arguments to say that some of the problems that Active Record solves shouldn't be solved by Active Record. 
uh, if and you sort a, of catch, a, catch my gist. Yeah, yeah. And at a high level, like, why would somebody want to pick ROM instead of Active Record or any? Like, why do you use ROM at all? Um, you would use it if you wanted. I mean, I, I'll say I would use it if I wanted to do sort of high concurrency things um, because it is a little, in my opinion, a little easier to put into like a highly um, concurrent system. Like if you're going to use JRuby and actually use threads, um, like native threads in JRuby and um, because of the immutability that is more common in ROM, I think you're sort of less likely to have some race condition or uh, yeah, race condition errors uh, and bugs if you have a lot of different things working on the same piece of data. Um, so that's one reason that you would do it. I think another reason to do it is if you have a greenfield application, it's just really interesting to try and pick out some of the good things in that style um, that you can bring back to writing active record if you want to do that later. Um, those experiences are always helpful. Um, that's why uh, it's why I think the, the diversity that you see in Europe for me has been one of the big, I don't know, sort of like a, a turbo booster on the way I write my normal Rails code, um, both in seeing stuff like ROM and trying to take some of the ideas behind, like maybe not making it harder to hit the database in a way um, means that you do less of it. Like you're much less inclined to have N plus one bugs, I think in ROM because of the way the associations are and uh, things like that. So I think there are ways in which certain things are not as easy as active record, but they shouldn't be easy if you catch my drifts. Like they're, they're things that, um, you know, it's, it's trivially easy to have like dozens of N plus one bugs in a regular Rails app, you know, because it, they make it really easy to access your associations, but they also don't enforce um, eager loading. Like in one of the best things that I've seen for, well, one of my favorite things I've seen is in the sort of um, not an ORM, but kind of serving the same thing in Elixir called Ecto, where you cannot have an N plus one bug. Like it's just impossible to do because you'll have an error if you're trying to access associated data that hasn't been preloaded. Interesting. So yeah, like there's, there's um, not necessarily that level of, um, of uh, trying to help you avoid shooting yourself in the foot in ROM. But there are things that I think sort of help guide you towards um, what some people might think are better decisions or more sustainable ways of developing or more um, guiding you more towards some accepted best practices maybe, or what some people believe are, are best practices uh, yeah, I have I, to agree with a lot of them. But yeah, I, I was going to say that, that what you're, what you're kind of talking about is if you only use active record, then you're sort of, letting somebody else's design decisions impact how your application is designed. Uh, if you start looking at ROM or SQL or data mapper or any of the other possible things out there, you are, you are more prepared to make a choice of the decisions that active records developers are making 
are really a good fit for your application. You're right. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, you have a greater, um, a, a greater number of tools in your toolbox, but you also know, uh, you know, you can look and see like, well, maybe I shouldn't use as many active record callbacks as I have been using. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, when you start seeing how other people handle persistence, and uh, and things like that, you it can inform the way that you use other tools. Um, like you can have more tools, and also you can use your existing tools in a different way. So I think that that's uh, really Im- helpful uh, if you have the time and the freedom to do it. I mean, it's it, almost never are you going to change out your ORM or your persistence layer from a production application. You know, I'm sure people do it, but it's exceedingly rare and, and not everyone has a greenfield application where they can choose to say, okay, I'm going to use uh, Hanami and ROM, or they're going to say, you know, oh, I'm going to make this uh, a Sinatra app and use ROM for persistence or something like that. Um, that's, it can be hard to have those experiences, and I think because Rails is sort of the accepted norm, that it can be hard for people to have opportunities to experience those things. But if they do have the opportunities, and it's it's really, um, I think there's a lot of good in those experiences, and uh, just having more people talking about those experiences when they do have them, I think is really helpful and, and useful. Uh, you know, once. Once uh, DN Simple has a couple months of this new API out, I would really hope that they share some of their experiences of, of how that's been for them, uh, because that's going to, I think, be really important for the community as a whole to sort of hear how a pretty significant uh, scale company is using that framework and how it's been for them. Uh, I know there's been some talks about um, the lead up to it, but now that it's actually in production, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear how it happens. And I think sharing those stories from the people that do have them is, is really, really important uh, for the growth of the community as well. I mean, it, it takes time from them and I don't want to say that they have to do it, but it, it's really nice and helpful when people do have those experiences to come back and share with the community. Jerome, you mentioned in the chat exorcism.io. Do you want to bring that up and ask your question? Uh, yes, I just wanted to know uh, if anyone had touched because I know I just rolled in on like let in like 15 minutes into it. I don't know if anybody uh, touched about his experience of working with Exorcism IO. And I know because we brought up Elixir earlier, and I know now that he's uh, contributing to the uh, Elixir uh, portion of Exorcism. So I want to know what motivated, what was the motivation behind that? So I try and do the whole like pragmatic programmers learn a language every year thing. And uh, 2016, I decided would be for Elixir because it did hit 1.0. I try not to sort of jump into stuff too early. Um, So I waited until Elixir was 1.0 before I went into it. But uh, when I do try and learn a new language after doing like the basic stuff, reading, you know, the, the basic books, reading the docs, doing a couple small things, I try and look for open source uh, repositories that I can contribute to. And I also, when I do learn a language, usually exorcism is one of the first places I go. Um, But I realized that 
I can do the problems on exorcism and get that feedback, but I can also learn the language and contribute to the exorcism community by implementing more um, exercises in the language that I'm learning because there are a whole suite of exercises that every language can implement, but most languages don't have all of them implemented. So instead of doing the implemented ones that actually have the test suites written and, and you just have to solve the, the given problem and you get the test suite, I started um, adding new implementations in Elixir of the other problems that were out there. Um, and that was great because I was both practicing and learning the language and also I felt like doing something good for the community. And I did sort of enough of that and enough of other stuff to have the uh, existing maintainers ask me to be a maintainer of the track. So now I'm one of uh, three technically maintainers, but it's really two uh, that are sort of active these days on that track. And we, we actually sort of have a rule amongst ourselves that the maintainers don't implement new exercises because that's sort of a good low hanging fruit for new contributors. So we try and leave that. Um, but a lot of what I do as in that role now is actually trying to get new contributors to contribute to the track, to implement new exercises, help update test suites, update documentation if they can. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of, it's less coding new stuff in that track than it is uh, trying to do outreach and trying to get more people involved in exorcism because I think it's a really great project and I'm so happy that it exists. I've gotten so much benefit out of it that I sort of felt bad not giving back. <laughs> um, and it was actually, I think that was the first, not the Elixir track, but exorcism was the first project that I contributed to in open source because um, when I was learning Go the year before in 2015, I uh, was looking for a project and like a lot of the stuff in Go is really gnarly low level stuff, but there's uh, the, the CLI for exorcism is written in Go and um, Katrina is like one of the nicest, kindest maintainers in the world. And uh, she's one of the maintainers for the CLI and, and I got to learn so much uh, Go working on uh, that CLI. Um, that's sort of where I got started. And then, when I was done with my year of go and moved on to Elixir, I, I decided to keep going and trying to help exorcism because I think it's, it's such a wonderful project. And um, yeah, I think practice is really important both for learning, but also for uh, continuing to develop your skills even after you've learned a language. Continuing to practice on katas and, and problems like that are, are really helpful, good things. So I, I try and do what I can to help. Cool, cool. All right, thanks. Thanks for that insight. I just wanted to know what was the uh, motivation behind it. All right, well, let's uh, let's jump over and do some picks. Jason, do you want to start us off with picks? I would love to start us off with picks. So my first pick is a book. I was just walking around my local library, and I saw this book with kind of an interesting title. The title was Do What You Love and Other Lies About Success and Happiness. And that really attracted me because I'm not a big fan of like the, the whole do what you love thing. I think it's dumb. Um, and I <laughs> opened up the book and it started talking about how like, um, what's his name? The guy who painted the Sistine Chapel. Why can't I remember Michelangelo. his name? You know, Michelangelo. You know 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and he actually like had a horrible time doing it. Right, exactly. Um, but it was like really boring and stressful and stuff for him, which you wouldn't really have expected. Because like, what what more quintessential definition of like a labor of love than than painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? But he actually had a bad time. So that's all I read of it, but it was enough to tell me that it's going to be a really interesting book. So that's that's my first pick. Do what you love and other lies about success and happiness. My, my other pick is something that I recently started offering. Um, I recently started offering free training, and I'm going to be offering both free and paid training in the future um, around Ruby on Rails and Angular. So if you go to angularonrails.com, it's pretty easy to find where the free training thing is. I just had over a hundred people apply to my first free training session, which is way more than I expected. So I'm definitely going to be doing a lot of these throughout 2017. So if that sounds cool to you, go check that out. All right, Jerome, what are your picks? Uh, Roger that. Um, my first pick is the first book that I finished reading in 2017. Uh, Thank You Economy by Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, it's one of his older books, but it really helped, like, help me put things in perspective in regards to, like, where's the next uh, direction for our marketing and our customer service for events, uh, for our nonprofit vets who code. We're trying to really, this year, focus on taking, making service and service to not just the veteran, but to our supporters, our number one uh, primary focus, you know, trying to put the people back in the code. Um, so that's my first pick. I absolutely loved it. Um, I knew I, I was going to like it. I've read uh, Ask Gary V and uh, Jab, 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 Right Hook. So I knew that, you know, this book was going to just fit right in with stuff that I was going to enjoy. So that's my first pick. Second pick is uh, Tools of the Titans of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Uh, I, it's almost like an encyclopedia of really good advice and information I've been using. I've read two chapters of just bouncing around. I, first and foremost, it's great that you don't have to read the book from front to back. You can read for information or questions that you have. Uh, so that makes it really, really uh, cool in that aspect. But I've just started with, I used their productivity chapter and a chapter in regards to like health. And I've started applying those, uh, started last week applying those, and it's already been giving back uh, to me beneficially within tenfold. So that's another pick. And my final pick would be uh, Digital Ocean. I uh, really want to thank those guys for coming on board and deciding that they were going to be our hosting sponsor for uh, Vetsu Code for 2017. And uh, so it's a really cool and really big deal. So those are my the only. Uh, those are my picks for this week. Awesome. Brian, what are your picks? So I have a couple of picks. The first pick I have is a book uh, that was recommended to me by a friend of mine called Driven to Distraction at Work. Um, and it's it, it looks on the surface as one of these books that's going to be a sort of a self-help book and help you figure out if you've got some problem paying attention and focusing on tasks. But as the more I have dug into it, I can see why a friend recommended it to me. Uh, it, it actually kind of talks about the reasons why 
the reasons why humans get distracted, the reasons why. And it turns out that a lot of them happen to be things that happened in childhood, things that happened with early education. And that's one thing as, as an educator I've always been interested in is how people's uh, reactions towards adult uh, situations, even if it's in meetings or to-do lists or things like that, how those are influenced by their earlier educational experiences or their earlier uh, interpersonal experiences, either with parents or friends or authority figures. Uh, so it's turned out to be quite a quite a fascinating book. Um, just reading the case studies and learning about the different types of ways uh, that people have issues meeting the goals that they want to meet. Uh, and the other one is uh, something that I have been meaning to play around with. And so as 2017 came around, I decided to start monkeying around with it full time. Uh, it's called VimWiki and it's a, a wiki system for uh, keeping notes and just using Vim for that. It stores them in a stores. You, you can create a personal wiki with it, storing it in a directory of your choosing and you can create links between pages. And it's, it's nice because you don't have to set up a wiki infrastructure for yourself. You can just store this all locally, and it's a nice alternative to things like Evernote because you can use it to keep lists, uh, to do cross-referencing, to store your research in a format that you can export to HTML or you know, put it in a Dropbox folder and share it across all your machines. And it's been working out pretty well for me. I'm using it for a little under a week, and I'm very happy with it. So I, I kind of recommend it to um, people who, are, who, are, who use Vim and uh, want to keep track of the stuff that they need to do or keep track of the research that they're doing. Nice. I'm going to jump in here and talk about a couple of things that I've got going on. The first one is um, by the time this comes out, DevOps Remote Conf will be over. But if you're looking for a conference where we talked about things like uh, Docker and Chef and deployment and things like that, um, you can still get the videos. Just go to DevOpsRemoteConf.com. Uh, JS Remote Conf is coming up. Uh, the call for proposals and early bird tickets will be gone by the time this goes out, but you can still get regular price tickets and go to JS Remote Conf. I'm also going to be working on Freelance Remote Conf by then, and I think I mentioned those at the start of the show. Um, <clears throat> and then I think Ruby Remote Conf is the next one, um, and that'll be either in May or June. So if you go to rubyremoteconf.com, you can get all the details there. You can also submit talks and uh, all that stuff. And Devin was a speaker at Newbie Remote Conf this last year. Yeah, I think he mentioned that. So, um, you know, kind of a shout out to him. You can get the video to that, I believe, by just entering your email address. So go to dev, devchat.tv slash conferences and click on Newbie Remote Conf for 2016. Um, you just stick your email address in there and then you can watch his talk. Um, and I'll put a direct link to that so that you can just get it if that's what you want. Um, and then the other thing I'm going to pick is you may have heard my voice change over the course of the podcast. And that's because my Heil PR40 microphone died. Um, it kind of died a slow death. And so I didn't realize how bad the sound was uh, that you all were getting. So I apologize for that. Um, I haven't gotten a new microphone yet. It hasn't showed up at my house. Um, but uh, I've been using a Shure SM58, which is a $100 microphone. Um, it's not the best quality, but it's pretty good. Um, it's what I use to podcast with my kids. So if you're looking for kind of a decent microphone, but it's not like a $300 microphone, then the Shure SM58 is a nice one. Um, and I actually just went down to Guitar Center and picked it up. So if you have a Guitar Center near you, um, that's a good place to go for audio equipment. Uh, Devin, what are your picks? Cool. Uh, so first, I just want to say thank you to 
honeypot.io and, and sort of plug them. They're sort of like a, a great platform for finding developer jobs in Europe. So if you're looking for a job in Europe uh, and you're a developer, Honeypot is a great way to go. And they let me crash their offices sometimes and do things like record podcasts. So uh, they're super nice and really involved in the Ruby and the Elixir community here in Berlin. Um, so they're they're a great resource. Um, I also, I listen to a lot of podcasts, of course, and one of my favorites uh, is the Freakonomics podcast. And I think it's it's one of the better things you can do as a developer personally is to learn a little bit of economics because so much of what we do is, is at the intersection of, of um, studying how people um, use things. And that's sort of one of the ways that... Um, that economics and computer science are, I think, really tightly coupled together. Um, learning a little bit of that has made me a, a much better programmer over the last couple of years. So, and, and Freakonomics is just a, a brilliantly produced um, podcast. It's it's great radio and it's really great for anybody, but I think especially good for programmers. Um, and I also have a really cool Elixir project. Um, that I contribute to sometimes called Credo, which is sort of like the RuboCop of Elixir, but it's it's different in that uh, sort of the tagline is Credo is a static code analysis tool for the Elixir language with a focus on teaching and code consistency. So instead of just failing when you do something quote unquote wrong, it will give you a whole ton of information about why it might not be great to do that thing and uh, sort of, I think the killer app is there are a lot of consistency checks. So instead of just blatantly enforcing in a project, one thing or another, it can find what you do the most and find where it's inconsistent. So, you know, spaces within parentheses, if you do it most of the time, but don't do it somewhere else, it can show you where you're inconsistent in your style rather than strictly enforcing a style guide. So I think that's really, really super cool. Um, uh, oh yeah, and then a Twitter bot. Uh, I love Shiba Inus, and um, I have a Shiba Inu at home. They're wonderful, wonderful dogs. Um, and there's a Twitter bot called the, the Shiba Bot that will give you every half hour uh, an adorable picture of a Shiba Inu in your Twitter feed, which uh, has on many cold, rainy Berlin days made me much happier. So that is a great, great Twitter bot. And that's it. All right, if, if people. I, I muted my mic, but I'm over here dying about that Twitter bot. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, just curious, uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter or check out what you're working on these days, where do they go? Sure. So on Twitter, I'm Devin C. Estes. That's D-E-V-O-N-C-E-S-T-E-S. Uh, and then on GitHub, I'm just Devin Estes without the C. Um, and those are sort of the two best ways to find me. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you again for coming. And we'll catch you all next week. Great. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys.